Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand how we think, feel, and relate to our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock, and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross, writer and activist. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. Hello, everybody. We are very excited to be back with, I guess, the official first episode of the new season of The Body Protests. Nadia, how are you? I'm very well. Also very excited about the launch of this series. We've got so many amazing guests and conversations um, uh, that we can't wait for you to hear. Honey, how are you? I'm great. I mean, I am managing as best I can in this strange time and spending a lot of time with my cats. Well, um, just to give you a heads up on this series, we started recording pre-lockdown, so back in February, which now feels like three lifetimes ago. So just a heads up that there will be some variation in the sound quality between episodes and maybe even the the conversation because uh, all of our lives have, have have changed somewhat since since February um and everything we're recording now is like on zoom so we are dealing with varying degrees of bandwidth and um you know mental capacity also (laughs) today we are very excited to be sharing a conversation we had with Stephanie Yeboah during lockdown this conversation took place actually right before the launch of her book Fatally Ever After, which we had the pleasure of reading and it's wonderful. Uh, I think it's currently a bestseller, so really go out and buy that. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, We had some incredible discussions around desirability, dating as a fat woman, the lasting impact of bullying, rejection in general, uh, father-daughter dynamics, you name it, we talked about it. Um, It was really rich and really just so... uh, Stephanie is such a joy to talk to. She's so articulate and so empathetic. And yeah, it was a lovely conversation and we hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. Yeah, absolutely. And I can hear your, your cat there in the background. Having a jolly having old a, time. A, having a great time. So, you know, keeping it really real. Just a heads up with the conversation with Stephanie. Again, it was a really incredible episode. But as a heads up, we do talk about disordered eating, eating disorders, also colorism and skin bleaching. So if you're vulnerable to these kinds of conversations, bear that in mind. We will put timestamps of when we're getting into the the heart of those conversations so you can skip over those bits um but yeah just to bear that in mind that we do we do cover those topics but that being said it's such a wonderful conversation and we really hope you do join us for it stephanie has done us the honor of recording a little preview from her book fatly ever after which we'll play now and then lead straight into our conversation so we really hope you enjoy Growing up as a black fat girl in the UK can be quite traumatic to say the least. I'll tell you that for free. We went through it back in the day, didn't we? The fat jokes, the you're so blick jokes, invisibility, the colorism, the rampant fat phobia, the mockery. We went through it all. And even though we are currently in the throes of this so-called body positivity revolution, Plus-size black women are still losing out and being marginalised in favour of our socially acceptable whiter counterparts. It's about time we had our views and perspectives listened to, don't you think? I grew up in a moderately suburban part of southwest London to two Ghanaian parents who had lived in the UK for some time. My dad, while being born in the UK, spent his childhood and early teenage life in Ghana. My mum, born in Ghana, spent the majority of her child and teenage life in southeast London in Kent, with the latter making her the only black child in her primary and secondary school. My dad attended boarding school in Ghana, where bullying and hazing were seen as more as rites of passage than anything else, 
which is why he always had a somewhat meh attitude towards me getting bullied in school, from what I can remember. My mum, on the other hand, went through the kind of outlandish racism that a lot of us today would only see on TV. From being caught up in the BNP riots in her local neighbourhood to being bullied for being black at school, my mum pretty much lived through it all, which was the reason for her no-nonsense, I've had it worse than you at school approach when it came to my struggles and issues with bullying. Primary school was a breeze for me. I hadn't yet encountered the feelings of insecurity and low self-esteem in regards to my weight, even though I was a bit chubbier than the other kids. After spending two years of schooling in Ghana, being caned by Catholic nuns for merely breathing, running around the sugarcane fields and eating nothing but plant-based foods for the duration of my stay there, I came back to the UK to see out the rest of my primary school education, looking a bit smaller but not really being aware of my body or how different it was to everyone's at the time. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on The Body Protest. Honey and I have been really excited to speak with you. Um, And I know we've done an event together in the past, but this week we have both guzzled your new book, Fatally Ever After, which will be out by the time this episode goes live. So before we start, a huge congratulations. How does it all feel to have a book out in the world? Thank you so much. Thank you. It's very, very overwhelming because I never thought that this would be a thing that would happen. Um, I'm really excited for people to kind of read the book and just know more about the body positivity movement and how, you know, when you exist within different um, intersections, life can be a little trickier to navigate. And so I'm just excited that people finally get to kind of have a different narrative to read and a different um, perspective of things regarding all things body image. So yeah, it's overwhelming to say the least. I mean, I can only imagine, but yeah, as I say, huge congratulations. I can't wait for other people to read it. So what we like to start with on this podcast is a little bit of an introduction to you and your relationship to your body growing up. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit and share what you're comfortable with. Yeah, sure. So I've always had a a very fraught relationship uh, with my body. Um, I went through a very long period of self-hate and self-loathing and a lot of this stemmed from secondary school so when I was in year seven on our first day of school I started getting bullied from that day uh, because of my surname and my surname kind of made me the target of bullies who then later noticed that I was fat and black and these were all things that they used um, to bully me both uh, verbally and physically and um it was just a downward spiral of oh wow my body is different to all of the other girls in in school and they're getting attention and I'm just getting bullied so therefore it must be my body that's causing the issue and I think what cemented my self-blame was telling my dad that I was getting bullied because at that time I never told anybody because I was just too I was just a very shy kind of nervous child and um, he said well maybe if you weren't so fat then you wouldn't be getting bullied and to hear that from somebody that's supposed to you know protect me and, and be there for me and be in my corner it really made me think oh wow so it is me if somebody that loves me is telling me that I'm the reason that I'm getting bullied that means I'm, I'm, I need to hate myself. So it began a rapid decline of mental health. So I, I was diagnosed with depression when I was 14. Um, I started doing a lot of self-harming and binge eating and um, went on to Weight Watchers very early on, which caused me to get a really bad eating disorder. But of course, I'm fat, so it doesn't, it's not framed as an eating disorder it's framed as doing something good for your body um so I went through that period and trying every diet imaginable hating summer because it meant I had to wear leggings and cardigans and cover up because I didn't want people to see my body and um yeah just wishing always wishing that I could wake up a different person disassociating even yeah so it was a very horrible kind of uh traumatizing time sort of growing up as a as a teenager and early adult there was a lot in your book that 
I did identify with in terms of, you know, growing up and the, the disassociation and the thing you wrote about Googling ways to lose weight as quickly as possible, which, you know, and the, the diet pills and things like that. And it leaves such a lasting impact on you. But obviously, of course, here you are now, your social media is incredible. You have a wonderful relationship with yourself, seemingly, you know, I, I'm sure everybody's human. But where do you feel like your relationship is with your body now? So I think I kind of exist in like two different parts of the spectrum with my body at the moment. So on one half, I'm very, very happy. I feel very confident. My self-esteem um, is is really good. And I've never felt so happy and at home in my body ever. This is, I mean, I, I can't complain. I, I think it's amazing. But then there's like this weird separation when it comes to men, I revert back to that 14-year-old depressed person with low self-esteem and I feel really horrible about my body. And it's taken like a lot of therapy to kind of uncover that. And I think it kind of stems back to like what my dad said, I think. Like, even though, you know, I come from a two-parent household, I always thought, oh, I don't have dad issues. I do have dad issues. <laughs> I really do. I was always daddy's little girl. I was the firstborn. We were very close. And as I started to put on weight, he got very distant and started to get very strict on me and shame me for being plus size and embarrass and humiliate me. And then when he said what he said, when I told him I was getting bullied... It was almost like that kind of like male rejection that has followed me my whole life. So even though now I'm at a point where I'm really confident and I feel at home in myself and love myself, there's still that issue of not feeling desirable enough or or wanted enough by men. Um, that sometimes just makes me feel so insecure sometimes. Um, and so that's still something that I struggle with till now in that, you know, my lack of relationship slash dating life is predominantly because of how I look. And so there are days when I slip into like, oh, I wish I could be smaller so that somebody would like me. Um, but it's something that I'm continually trying to work on, I think. I, I think it's interesting because dating as a fat woman is a very complicated thing. And like you said, you know, you exist on an intersection of you're not just a fat woman, you're a fat black woman, which adds a different set of difficulties. Do you think that there is a kind of way to get through this dating malarkey alive? I mean, you talk a lot about dating in your book, and I think it's a very painful, interesting chapter that I think a lot of people will identify with. But I've written about dating as a fat woman before too and I you know I've felt some struggles of it I always worry about putting other fat women off dating by sharing um lived experiences like horrifying lived experiences even though part of it is an honesty and a warning do you think that there is a middle ground there oh do you know what I don't know because I'm exactly the same as you I'm like for me anyway I only have horror stories so I I, the thing is, I know that there are so many fat women who have successful relationships. They're in great relationships. And even me, I ask them, like, how did you guys meet? What did you do? What are the tips? Because when it comes to dating, I'm such a newbie and I have little to no experience of a successful date or a successful relationship. Um, because for the most part, it's all been based on, you know, fetishizing and um, humiliation and people just rendering you invisible as soon as they come across your um, social media and they see, you know, other full-length pictures of you, then it's like they unmatch or they block. So I'm just like, I'm sure it can be done. And, and I've seen it done. You know, I've seen so many examples of, of fat women in successful, happy, loving relationships. But I guess when it comes to me, I just, I don't know what the formula is. I, I've almost resigned myself, to be fair. Like, I, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen for me. So therefore I'm not, I can't put that energy into dating anymore because it's just really tiring and monotonous and it's just full of a lot of rubbish men out there. <laughs> yeah, so. it can be very exhausting. But also, to be fair, you've got a book coming out. Like, who needs men right now? Like, <laughs> you know, you are yeah. existing joyfully um, oh, while let them rain on our parade. I mean, I guess what I think is the positive from that is you saying about understanding or like listening to the stories from 
people who look like you and how they've worked into their relationships. I think sometimes we don't hear those narratives. So you're saying about, you know, we have the horror stories, we see the horror stories, and people write about that and share those experiences. But let's share those experiences of people who don't fit that societal norm of who is desirable um, and see how they find love. And I think those are the stories that I think so many people want to hear um, and would be so powerful for people because I think it weighs you down all of the the horror stories and, and there's the anxiety about you know you don't want to put yourself through that mm. like and who would like who would want to put yourself through that you you don't mm. and so you do want to protect yourself but actually if we can hear more of those stories I think that would be you know just something that would be really beneficial to everyone um in in many ways I actually think that leads quite nicely into um, the next question, which was you kind of found your start in the body positivity movement through Tumblr, if I'm correct. You know, in the book, you talk about that was the first time you saw kind of all of these beautiful fat women who looked like you and you were like, oh, well, they are out there thriving. I have a similar experience, too, as that's where, you know, I learned everything I know and I owe everything to Tumblr and similarly I think that was the first time I ever saw um happy fat women in loving relationships and thought oh that's a possibility for me because up until that point I hadn't and I'm you know don't want to project but I assume it was a similar situation why was Tumblr so impactful to you and how did things change in the transition to Instagram so with Tumblr I actually joined it because I there was a huge um trend of inspiration fitspiration on there and that was yeah so that's actually how I joined it it was during a period of time where I wanted to lose a lot of weight very quickly and I thought let me hop onto tumblr and look at all of these fitspiration blogs let me take you know weekly pictures of myself and my weight loss let me take pictures of the food that I'm eating and basically use it as a bit of a journal um uh to 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 know my my weight loss and things and so that's predominantly how I used it I just used it as a way to uh to create a diary out of um all the food that I was eating and also reblog images of what I wanted to look like quote unquote um and so it was almost like a kind of Pinterest of the day and like you know I would like repost <laughs> repost all of these amazing people but then what happened was as I was reblogging, you know, all of these different, um, not different, but all of these body shapes that were different to me in terms of being smaller, I guess the algorithm started to pick up on that. And so I started getting a lot of um, before and after posts. And then from there, it started showing me a lot of plus size women, um, but they were like in bikinis and underwear and and writing these long essays about self-love. And what I noticed was that they were using the hashtags um, fat acceptance and body positivity and also body posi. So I was like, why is this interjecting my feed? Like, I'm trying to lose weight. Why are you showing me these images? Um, but then I started reading more and more. And then there was um, a user uh, that I came across called Marfmellow. Her username was Marfmellow. And she was like this, like six foot one, um, fat mixed race woman. And she would do these reviews of um, plus size clothing in America and put them on her Tumblr. But then she would also do like story times and other YouTube type lifestyle things. And I, I just fell in love with her because I was like, She's this plus size woman, but she's so confident in everything she was wearing. She would be wearing boob tubes and like um, mini skirts and mini dresses. And she was so stunning. And part of what made her stunning was her confidence. And I was just like, but she's almost bigger than me. But yet she looks amazing and she just doesn't care. Why? What is preventing me from being the same? So then I started following her and then from then I started following all of the other women that were coming across my feed and um, over like a week or so my feed had completely transformed from fitspo and thin uh, thinspo to just all of these fat black and mixed race women um, writing poetry and uploading videos and gifts and all of these things of them looking amazing and I it's almost like I discovered this kind of Atlantis of sorts like this underground world full of women who were celebrating their bodies and and suddenly I didn't feel alone anymore I felt part of something and I think that was what really spurred the change for me that's amazing that's it's so special that kind of when you find that haven um 
But what was it like moving to Instagram? Because obviously that kind of perfect moment of bliss in Tumblr, just, you mm. know, following all those wholesome accounts can't last forever. Yeah, so Instagram was an interesting one, only because I joined Instagram... I didn't join it for my blog. I joined it before I started my blog and then I just used it for like random photography, rubbish, following mm. family and stuff. So then when I did start my blog, it just kind of, e I was able to easily transition into doing, you know, posting up blog stuff. And at the time I wasn't doing body positivity or fashion even. I was firmly doing skincare and beauty. So for the most part, I was following lots of skincare and beauty people. Um, and then it just so happened that a couple of the people that I was following on Tumblr were also on Instagram. So it was Gabby Gregg, who owns Gabby Fresh, Nicolette Mason, um, Danielle Vanier, Callie Thorpe. They were all on Tumblr. So then I just naturally sort of followed them to Instagram, started following them. Um, and then when I started doing fashion and things sort of in 2014, that's when I started to post up a lot more fashion stuff. And I guess it was at a time when people were not used to seeing fat girls on Instagram showing off their bellies and their thighs and all of this stuff. So the trolling at that time was just chef's kiss. It was just disgusting. Like it was, oh it was, such, it was horrible. You know, the amount of comments that we would get and I would get, was just ridiculous and there was the time when I began to feel a bit insecure on Instagram because as we got the Kim Kardashians and the Kylie Jenners started posting their bodies and all of this uh, we we started to get a rise of the influencer as we know it now um, which started to gain prominence 2014 and 15 we noticed that there was you know another body type that people felt like they had to contend with and it was a face type and a body type similar to Kim the Kim Kardashians and the hourglass shapes and the big bums and that's almost become its own Instagram standard of beauty um and so yeah there were times when I would sort of stalk some of these accounts and be like oh I wish I was shaped like her I wish I was shaped like her but the one good thing about Instagram is that you're able to curate your feeds to people that look like you. And my explore page at the time was just full of fat women just looking amazing. So in my feed, it's mostly sort of um, fat women, brands, uh, some friends and family, um, activists and journalists and writers and all of that kind of stuff. So luckily now I, I think I'm at a point where I'm I'm good with Instagram in regards to what I digest because I've been able to kind of cut out the toxicity of what Instagram can provide in regards to body shape and the things that they tend to advertise, especially to young adults. Um, and just this standard of beauty that's based in Facetune. Like I just, yeah, I just don't, I don't, I don't try and feed into that anymore. But at the beginning, yeah, it was definitely difficult trying to sort of integrate when you had all of that going on in the background. In the body positive movement, I feel like, I think it's obviously changed a lot over the years. I think it's been commandeered somewhat. I'm sure you feel that too. Um, why do you think it's so important for black women or do you not align with it anymore? Mm. Um, so I don't align with the movement anymore just because of, just because of how much it's been kind of taken over. Um, the reason that I wrote the book was because, you know, the body, the body positivity movement was created in part by black plus size women, um, predominantly in America. And so this movement was a safe space or was supposed to be a safe space for black women, women of colour, um, disabled women, women who exist in bodies that don't have the same privileges as other bodies do. Um, it was a safe space for us to celebrate ourselves and say, you know what, the outside may not like us and think we're hideous, but we can celebrate each other and we can, you know, bask in each other's amazingness and, you know, talk about the issues that affect us on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think as soon as um, the movement started to pick up uh, pick up prominence um, was when brands and the media decided oh actually you know we can capitalize off of this by trying to include everybody under the movement and what they did was and it was interesting actually watching it happen in real time um, 
they started to use spokes models and and models who were at the very low end of plus size so it was very um our, um you know hourglass shaped bodies big bums flat stomachs high cheekbones very aesthetically beautiful models started being used um as the spokes model for body positivity and what this did was it pushed out the people whose bodies don't have privilege in order to create this new standard of beauty of what a plus size woman looks like which now is hourglass shaped size 14 to 16 big bum big boobs it was yeah it was just this whole thing of the media and brands and people hopping onto the bandwagon of body positivity but because at the end of the day patriarchy and sex is always going to sell it was almost like them saying well we want to support body positivity but we still have to market our clothes or our skincare or we have to market this ideology and in order to do that we need people that are still going to be seen as sexy it's become a case of you know pushing out people whose bodies don't have privilege in order to usher in basically everybody else even if you do have a privileged body it's like now you've kind of infiltrated in a space that never belonged to you because I think one of the things that people need to remember is that if you are smaller or you do have a privileged body you have that privilege where you can love yourself anywhere you can exist and and love yourself as loudly as you want wherever you want but it's this thing of people wanting to specifically come into this movement is what causes the tension I think and this is a really, really extreme comparison and example, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. It's like when white people sometimes, well, some white people want to use the N-word when singing. It's like, you could use any other word, but why is it this specific one that you are gravitated to? Why do you want to say it? And it's almost like with this, like, you can love yourself anywhere. You can create your own movement. You can do whatever you want. Why do you want to come into this movement that is for marginalised people, you know? Um, and so... Yeah, I don't I don't really see myself as being a part of the movement anymore. Um, a lot of black plus size people don't because we feel like we're not good, not almost not good enough, but we don't feel like the standard of beauty it represents represents us. Um, and so a lot of us have just sort of gone back into the fat acceptance movement, radical fat acceptance, just everything outside of what body positivity is supposed to represent. Yeah, I think that's that. It's really nice and I think what I really liked in your book is you really outlined the history of the body positivity movement and how it originates from fat acceptance to begin with and I think that you lay it out really nicely in the book. Again I think with your book I think because we're reading it from your perspective and I think your voice really comes through and you centre black women throughout and I think again it's a, it's a narrative we don't hear so much about and you talk about misogynoir and the harmful stereotypes of black women in the media. And I wonder if you could share with us and our listeners what misogynoir means and some examples of how black women are stereotyped and, and the harm that that can, um, can cause. So misogynoir is basically misogyny that is a specific type of misogyny that is aimed towards black women. So it kind of takes on the racial elements plus the sort of sexism elements and a lot of this is based on the stereotypes that have been put on black women you know since the beginning of time so if I was to talk about stereotypes that have been attributed to black women in general a lot of and especially darker skinned black women um a lot of these things tend to be things such as sassy strong um aggressive violent hypersexual rude um um yeah those are like the main ones basically and then I think when you put being plus size into it um from my experience anyway what I tend to see specifically from men is um dominant dominant is a huge one like the amount of messages that I get on dating apps from guys who assume I'm a dominatrix and I'm just like I'm really not I'm so introverted and I'm very submissive I don't know, <laughs> talking about. I don't know why you've assumed that I am dominant but Again, when I do ask these questions, they say, oh, because you look, you know, because you're plus size and you, you just look sassy and all of these kinds of things. And unfortunately, these characteristics have been um, perpetuated by the media as well in the movies and the TV shows that we watch. So, you know, when we watch TV, it's always um, 
it's always with black women and black fat women who are put into roles such as the help um, or they are like the mammy or they are um, subservient in some way and very desexualized but equally they are also the matriarchs of the family so it's like you've you've got this strong head of the household but yet they're still in a subservient kind of role um, so you either have that or you have the other direction which is hypersexualized so the sort of man to trope um you know very feral all of these all of these kinds of attributes it just feels like we're never allowed to just exist as black women with you know a successful job successful relationship a healthy social life just a normal person we're always caricatures of what society seems to think black women are and this dates back to you know slavery and and years and years ago when you know they used to keep black people in zoos um i talk about in the book the story of sarah bartman who was a south african woman who had a really big bum and she was kept in a zoo and she was hypersexualized and um seen as as a zoo animal uh very very feral all of these things she was made to prostitute um and then when she died they cut out her labia and her insides and they put it on display in a french museum and it was only returned back to south africa in 2002 um and she was essentially mummified without her permission or her family's permission and it just goes to show the objectification sometimes of black bodies and people being able to cut into us and 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 mutilate us for the sake of science because they don't understand how a black woman's bum can be this big or how her labia is so uh, long or whatever the case may be whatever difference they find back then they would mutilate and kill us to, to for the sake of science and so again it's this kind of racist trope that comes from likening black people to animals and to monkeys us being very aggressive and feral um it's always been perpetuated like i say within the media and yeah it's 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 really heartbreaking because then society watches this and then they assume that you know everyday person on the street is like this and so when i'm approached by people who assume that sometimes i feel a bit I don't know, it just makes me feel a bit weird because I have been, you know, to parties and events where men have been like, oh, you intimidate me. And I'm just like, I've just been in the corner saying nothing to nobody the whole night. Like how, why, what is it about my appearance that intimidates you? And and then I realise it's because of all of these, you know, stereotypes. And some of the things, you know, I think it's important to note that some of the words or the stereotypes, even though they sound positive, so some of the things like um, strong, um, str like black women have been attributed to being strong for, for mentally and physically for years and years. But then again, that's very detrimental because then you are, you are it's still dehumanising because you're saying that we are able to tolerate pain on a different level when we can't. It's the reason why, you know, five um, black women are five times more likely to die in pregnancy than um, white women. You're kind of putting this pedestal, putting us on this pedestal of, well, we're going to shit on them some more because they can handle it. They can handle the pain. They don't show their um, they don't show their pain. They don't show their depression. And that's one of the huge reasons why mental health in the black community is never spoken about, because we are taught from a young age to always be on alert, to always be wary, to never be upset and to always realise that people before you have had it harder than you. So you have no reason to have things such as mental health issues because in, in the Afro-Caribbean society, it's it doesn't exist, basically. Um, luckily, our generation is being more open to talk about it. But back then it was like, we don't talk about these things because you have to perform strength all the time and it can get tiring. Yeah, and I think like that whole answer is so important. And I think just thinking about how it's so systemic. So from science and research, how racism is so ingrained within that. Um, and it's like how it's like it's built into the system. And then uh, you said it beautifully in terms of how black women, it's like they're owned by society. You know, it's like there's this ownership yeah. um, and it's like it's like then it's not your own body. And then how do people then relate to their own body? And I think that it's so so important and I think these are the conversations that we really need to be having and there's something else that you mentioned and you mentioned it a couple of times within the book um 
about being a and I know you've written about it elsewhere about being a dark-skinned mm. black woman and the impact of colorism and I wonder again if you would be happy to share a little bit about your thoughts there with um like the prejudice based on on skin tone or skin shade yeah basically it's uh it's one of these uh conversations that has been happening throughout history um for, for such a long time in regards to being darker skinned being lighter skinned this whole thing kind of stems from slavery again unfortunately where you would have the darker skinned slaves working in the field and you would have the lighter skin shade uh, the lighter skinned um slaves who for the most part were often the offspring of rape um would be working in the house and so it almost created this divide within darker skinned and lighter skinned people um slaves and then uh, you know, indentured servants and sort of, you know, coming on towards the civil rights era, all of that kind of stuff, where there was almost like a, a schism because darker skinned people feel like bottom of the barrel, basically, because of how dark their skin is. And again, we have attributes um, to them relating to, you know, being more aggressive, angrier, ruder, um, uglier, and also this really harmful um comparison to to masculinity so we see like a lot of darker skinned women always being um referred to as men or just being masculinized and i just think we're not afforded femininity as darker skinned women so you have people like serena williams who you know is an amazing athlete but the amount of times she's been called a man the amount of times she's been called you know a monkey all of these things by newspapers in america because of her dark skin is absolutely ridiculous the lighter you are or the whiter you are the better your social standing is so from slavery up until now it's always been the case of if you are mixed race if you are lighter you get better job opportunities in terms of love interests like your desirability goes through the roof you're able to marry better and you just get treated as a better member of society than somebody who is darker skin because that's attributed to poverty and um uh being dirty and and being unclean and being ugly and all of these other you know horrible attributes that people um attribute to dark skin so when i was around 13 14 i actually had this really huge complex with my skin tone i just i just thought it was bad enough me being fat in school, but to be dark skinned on top of that, I just felt like it was just too much. It was too much. I had to try and alleviate one of those things. And for me, the first thing that I thought of was my skin colour. So I actually did start bleaching my skin um, for about a year um, using products that um, the ingredients were actually banned in the UK, like in the year 2000, but somehow they were still getting them in shopkeepers would keep the products underneath the shelf so you had to go up to the shopkeeper and ask do you have such and such brand and they always sold it they always sold it to me they didn't care about you know how old I was the fact that it was illegal um I was always sold it and I started using it started bleaching my skin and uh noticed that my skin was getting lighter, but it wasn't the kind of light that I had seen on TV. It wasn't like a mixed race, kind of caramel kind of light. It was going grey. So that was a bit worrying for me. And I noticed that my skin was starting to scale and get really itchy, as if I had eczema almost. And so I stopped doing it straight away because I realised that it wasn't having the um, effect that I thought it would have um, on me. So I stopped and I just kind of made it a mission to just learn how to accept my dark skin. Yeah, I think that's so um, important to share and to understand that this is going on in the UK because I think a lot of the research on colorism is very US-centric and then we tend to think about colorism as a global issue so it's something that's happening in Asia, in the Middle East, uh, you know, across Africa and we don't think about it or talk about it in the UK. You talk in the book about Missy Elliott and I loved that section, I thought it was so beautiful. Could you talk a bit about why Missy Elliott was so important to you and why you think representation is so important? I didn't really have a lot of idols growing up because there was such a serious lack of representation. But Missy Elliott was the one 
defining force I think in my life seeing somebody who was at the time plus size and darker skinned she's so ahead of her time when it comes to music videos and all of these songs that she produced I didn't know that fat women could be in this area of entertainment and be successful I rarely saw you know fat women you know as singers in terms of if they weren't gospel singers then I never really saw them be doing pop or R&B anything like that so then Missy Elliott comes along and she's not only is she rapping but she's dancing like with the rest of her backup dancers and she's doing an amazing job and I was just like I didn't know we could do this as well like I, I had no idea and I was so inspired representation is so 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 important because without the representation I would never have known I would never have known the limits to what we could do I would still probably see us and us by us I mean like plus size black women I'd probably still see us as being less than and feeling having feelings of unworthiness everybody deserves to have their stories and their narratives told regardless of your weight or your body type or your um race sexuality what have you and even like now I still get those feelings of oh my gosh representation and the last person I got that for was Lizzo for me being 31 and seeing her just take over the world has been such a huge motivator for me and such a huge confidence boost for me because it just shows that we do have the range we can do whatever anybody else is doing and we can do it well and I'm just so happy that millennials and Gen Z are growing up in a society where there is a lot more representation than what we had back in the 90s and early 2000s and that they get to grow up with loads of body positive bodies and singers and actresses of all shapes and sizes and races and so I think they're very very lucky because we didn't have that back in the day at all. I was just thinking as you were talking and to kind of circle back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with the um, with the skin bleaching but you mentioned right at the very start about disordered eating as well and having an eating disorder and as you said it's like it's not recognized as much or seen because it falls outside of the stereotype of having an eating disorder and I'm really curious to know how skin bleaching and then the disordered eating were they have were they happening at the same time or did one come before the other oh they were happening at the same time. There was a lot going on when I was a child. It was it was all happening. So it was like the Weight Watchers was, I was 13 when my mum put me on it. And then I stopped going to the meetings after like four weeks because it was just really body shaming. And I just didn't want to hear every week how disgusting I was. So I just stuck to the plan. Um, and from that plan, um, they tell you like how many calories or how many points, I think it was you had to eat each day. And I just took that to the max. I took that very, very seriously. Um, so then I started to really obsess over that. Um, I took it to the extreme as well, where there would be times when I wouldn't eat and I would just like juice um, or um, fast. Um, and to me, I thought that was being good. And for instance, if I was to go to like a party or a gathering or something and would eat like a slice of cake or a biscuit or something, I would come home and I would throw up. And I didn't think of it as bulimic. I didn't think of it as this is a bad thing. I thought of it as I'm keeping within my plan. I don't want to put on any weight. This is a good thing that I'm doing for my body. People started commenting on my weight loss and I was like, but I don't feel good in what I'm doing, but yet yeah, I'm getting positive responses. So maybe... I should continue. Um, and then the bleaching kind of happened a year later. So like, yeah, around the age of 14 or so. It was just a lot of pressure that I was putting on myself. I just hated myself so much and I just wanted to change as quickly as possible. So everything was ramped up to the max. I was eating, you know, very little, exercising a lot. And then bleaching, I would bleach like two, three times a day instead of the recommended once a day because I just wanted it to be like, now I wanted it to be I just didn't want to wake up and keep seeing this body looking back at me in the mirror 
first of all, I'm so sorry that was your experience. And then the fact that it was rewarded feels so obscene to me because I think if that was someone else's behaviour that had a different type of body, like the response would be like so dramatically different. Um, And I think, again, within how eating disorders are recognised and spoken about, that just needs to be completely changed um, because so many people are being harmed by that whole system and, and way of thinking. How did you manage because it sounds like you didn't have any support or help with it directly no so that kind of continued it continued up until I was at uni um but the thing is is that I wasn't even losing a huge amount of weight that was the thing it was like two pounds here two pounds there two pounds there but that's not an eating disorder like the requisite is not that you're like losing weight like it's the fact that you're engaging in these disordered eating behaviors and have disordered eating cognition like they're the that's what it is and I think again it's just the assumption that you need to like lose loads of weight to even qualify for an eating exactly exactly it's it's just mad that there still seems to be like a a standard of I don't want to say standard of beauty but an ideal when it comes to eating disorders it kind of continued throughout university and then when I was at uni again I decided to ramp it up a bit and I joined um lighter life which at the time you couldn't eat anything. It was literally just shakes that you had to live on. And so um, they recommended that you do it for three months. And um, I did it for a week. And then I remember going to my mum's for lunch um, on a Sunday. I remember this like it happened yesterday and I hadn't eaten in a week. And you're not even allowed to like chew gum, just water and these shakes. And I'd taken a shake with me and my mum... <laughs> So my mum knew that I was on the diet, but she didn't know the extremities. Like, she didn't know how extreme it was. And she'd cooked, like, this huge fry-up. And I was sitting down. She knew that I was, you know, fasting. And she came and waved this big platter of, like, beans and sausage and egg and all that. Just wafted it under my nose uh, as a joke. As soon as she did that, I passed out. And I remember my heart. When I came to, my heart was just, like, hammering. And I went to the doctor, like, two, I think two or three days later, just saying, like, I, I don't know what happened. I literally just um, passed out. And they were like, the doctor was like, oh, yeah, that's just a side effect of the diet because you haven't eaten in a long time. But still keep on it. What? Oh, my God. Because those kinds of diets, you have to be under the doctor's supervision. And so he was telling me to keep at it. And I was like, yeah, but I'm having, like, heart palpitations, like... I'm not well, I'm not eating. And so, again, with him, he's somebody who I'm supposed to be under his duty of care. So him saying what he said, I internalised it to mean, oh, it must mean I'm doing a good job. Let me just push through it. So I continued on it. After I left um, university, there was a period of time where I put on a bit of weight and I was a bit like, what is like, what is going on? I'm not liking this. Like, I need to get back to losing you know the weight and I think for me it was definitely an issue of control growing up I'd not really had the most secure of child childhoods I've kind of been moved from pillar to post and a lot of things happened that was out of my control and so eating whether it be a lack of eating or overeating has always been one thing that I could control the thing that made me stop doing it was and I think I speak speak about this in the book as well was when I wanted to go on holiday to Barcelona and I was like in order to go to Barcelona and go to the beach I had to lose a lot of weight and so I challenged myself to lose four was it three or four stone in about three months or so and by doing that I fasted I was taking laxatives I one of my aunts somehow who has connections to like the underground which I don't really know how she does it she just has like these really shady connections I don't know you always have like one person in the family that just knows everybody and um (laughs) she she was able to get me these diet pills from Russia I took those I was throwing up I was doing all of these really dangerous toxic things to lose weight and I lost the weight and I was in Barcelona and I looked to myself in the mirror and I was like I did all of this for what? Who who am I doing this for? Because I feel sick. I physically feel sick. My throat and my stomach feel raw from the retching. My skin is terrible from like the lack of eating and the lack of nutrition. My mental health was terrible because I just thought, okay, but I've got all of this loose skin now. Maybe I need to do more and then do more and do more. And I just realised that 
I put my body through so much trauma, but yet it was still here keeping me alive. And in that point, I was like, I was so grateful for my body for getting up in the morning and doing all of the things it was doing, despite me treating it like absolute rubbish. And so when I came back from Barcelona, that was when I was like, okay, I, I need to learn how to love myself because starving myself isn't the answer. Well, I'm so glad you got to that place, although you had to go through all of that to to get there. And I just wonder if you could share, because I think so many people will relate to what you've shared over the course of um, our conversation. If you've got any um, like go-to tips like for when you're having a bad body image day, when those like appearance pressures are feeling really loud, what you do um, that makes you like feel grounded again, feel grateful for your body, appreciate your body? Yeah, so a couple of things I do. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be up for, but I'm taking advantage of it while it's up. I have somehow learned the whole choreography to Beyonce's Homecoming concert wow. on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> it's taken a couple of months, but I think I've got it down. So on the days when I'm feeling like really rubbish, I will literally, I have like a pair of mum shorts that I, <laughs> that I wear and I just literally <laughs> oh just dance along. Yeah, I dance along to the whole, it's two and a half hours and I dance <laughs> along to it. And that's like my exercise for the day, but then it doesn't feel like exercise because yeah, I'm yeah, Beyonce. Yeah. So yeah <laughs> it's not it's not exercise um one thing that I always like to do as well is I I always say whenever you're feeling really rubbish mm-hmm. you don't even have to like invest a lot of money into it but just put on a pair of nice lingerie nice underwear mm-hmm. and just hang out in your room or your flat and just walk around in these you know beautiful lingerie that makes your body look amazing you know the silks and the lace and all of that stuff and just look at yourself and look at how beautiful you are and just appreciate, appreciate that. Like, take a thirst trap or take a sexy pic. Not for anybody else, but just for you. Just for you. Um, and just, like, love on yourself, I think, is treat your body to, to really, really nice things. Um, sometimes I'll look at my Instagram explore page because now it's at a point now where it's literally just all fat women now. And I just, like, read their captions and read their notes of encouragement um, and self-esteem and that really um, tends to help me out as well. I write as well so I journal. I know that's quite quite a boring answer but I found that journaling and kind of like getting my thoughts and feelings out there really does a lot to to help empty, free my mind of all of the negativity so that I can welcome in positive stuff and things that make me feel good yeah that's brilliant thanks Steph. we asked that question to all of our guests and that's probably the best answer we've ever had is oh. learning all of beyonce's homecoming <laughs> I, mean, I know Thank i'm like you. that's what i'm gonna have to do oh it's so fun i mean i just want to see it now <laughs> one day I'm go- on my ig live i'm gonna have to do it one day it's gonna be great please <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Where can we find you on social media? Oh, thank you for having me. Um, So my website is stephanieyaboa.com and my Twitter and Instagram is both at stephanieyaboa with a P-H. And where can we get your book? Oh yeah, my book book is um, coming out the 3rd of September and it is available at Waterstones, Foils, Amazon, all good bookshops, independent bookshops. Amazing amazing thank you so much brilliant thank you thank you guys thank you for listening to the body protest podcast we hope you've enjoyed this episode it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe rate and review you can follow honey on instagram at honeykinney and you can follow nadia at nadia.craddock this podcast is edited by the angels at project harness daisy and rasheen and brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network.